Welcome to Dissenting Opinions, a podcast by the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago Law School. I'm your host, William Bode, and you're listening to a special series we're calling Deep Dive, where Professor Adam Chilton and I will take a deep dive into originalism. We recorded this series each week of our winter quarter over Zoom in front of a quote-unquote live audience of students. So if there are things that seem out of context or don't make sense, that's why. Without further ado, let's deep dive into originalism. So welcome, everybody, to the uh, first episode of a recording of a new podcast for the Constitutional Law Institute called Deep Dive. The basic idea of what we have in mind is to take a quarter and spend sort of sustained attention on an argument. In this case, an argument for using the original meaning of the Constitution to interpret the Constitution, originalism, and to try to sort of do a deep dive into why people think that's a good idea, what the best arguments are against it, how originalism has responded to that, how the responses may create their own problems, Try to give it sort of a more serious and deep coverage than you get at your average, your average con law class or your average debate over originalism or anything like that. To really try to do a, a deep dive into what's going on, and I should say the spirit here is cooperative. So this is not a debate where the goal is for me to convince you that originalism is right and Adam to convince you that I am stupid. Here I would lose that debate, but in any case, that's not our goal. Our goal is to actually just try to like work through it to explain it. So I promise that. Adam finds originalism very puzzling, and so I'll try to explain some of the puzzles, and he will skeptically try to pull it apart, and that'll force me to come with better explanations, and we'll spend the, the quarter sort of walking through those arguments to see and see where they take us and, and what's satisfying and what's not. What we're going to do today is just start with originalism up to, let's say, 2010 or 2013. So... There are three main arguments for originalism that have had currency for a long time. And over the course of this talk, we'll talk about all three of them and sort of, you know, Adam will ask questions about them and we'll we'll see where that takes us. We'd love to get questions from you all as well in the chat, probably is the easiest, anytime towards the end earlier. And we'd love to get feedback and suggestions again by email or the chat or however, however you want to do as we go. There are going to be plenty of times, you know, we'll probably do the next week, we'll devote most of our time to criticisms of originalism. So there'll be there'll be plenty of that. And there'll be some of that today as well. So just in terms of where we're in terms of where we're going. That makes sense, Adam? Yeah, this all sounds great. Let me just add briefly to that the way that I see what's going on and why I think this is a worthwhile project and why I wanted to do it, which is as either a law professor or a law student or a practicing lawyer, Increasingly in constitutional discourse, originalism comes up again and again and again. And now that there's a solid majority of justices on the Supreme Court that are at least sympathetic to originalism, if not about originalists, I think that these arguments are going to be even more important going forward. Now, that said, typically the way academic discussions in our the workshops that we have or the lunchups, workshops that we have, et cetera, plays out is if someone like Will or another originalist appeals to originalism, the rest of us roll our eyes and groan and think this ridiculous argument again. And so what I'm hoping to do is, and asked Will to do, is to give me the, the best case for originalism from the beginning. That is so that I can understand uh, the most charitable set of arguments, the best set of arguments, and fully understand the argument instead of, as I currently do, 
immediately being skeptical for a variety of reasons. So my goal here is to learn from Will why you know smart people like Will are persuaded by this line of argumentation. So here are the three arguments I want to talk about today. I should say I don't find any of these completely persuasive by themselves. They I think each have holes, and that's part of what's led people, including me, to try to come up with you know new arguments to patch the holes. But these are these are I think like the three core building blocks or the three like three baseline arguments that that bring a lot of people sort of sympathetic to originalism in the first place. So one of them is a what I'm just going to call a linguistic argument, for lack of a better word. This is just like what reading is like, and the other two are consequentialist arguments. Can we start with the linguistic argument? That's the simplest place to start. Yeah, great. Let's jump in. Okay. So one of my favorite law review articles of all time, which I sent to Adam and did not make people, other people here read, although it's only 14 pages long, is called On Reading Recipes and Constitutions by Professor Gary Lawson. And the basic argument of the article goes like this. Suppose you found a really old fried chicken recipe and you wanted to figure out what it meant. And it would say things like, you know, take the chicken and cut it into pieces, you know, add flour, cook until brown. And you'd be like, what does this mean? What you would do, he says, is you would just look at the plain meaning of the text and where there is an ambiguity, you would try to understand the historical context. So if something was tasting wrong with your flour mixture, you'd wonder, well, maybe when Pearson made this recipe, they were using a different kind of flour or, you know, that kind of thing. But that's just, that's what you would do in understanding what the, what the recipe is and what it does, is you just try to figure out what the people who wrote it were trying to tell you. They're trying to communicate to you a recipe. You're trying to, to get the recipe. That's, that's what you'd do. And then he says, Constitution's just the same thing, right? The Constitution is just a, a recipe for government. It tells you, you know, how to hold elections and who should be in charge and what to do if different states do different things and what to do if crazy people try to disregard, you know, the results of the presidential election. And you just try to figure out what the people who wrote it are trying to do. That's a, the text plus the sort of original intent of the authors. It's really, you know, nothing complicated and only all these sort of people, law professors who want to make things too complicated, think there's anything more complicated than that. So does this seem crazy to you, Adam? Yeah, I have to say, I find this analogy entirely unpersuasive. So when you're giving someone a recipe, you have an exact vision of what you want to be created in mind. So you want your fried chicken to look exactly this way, to be this colored, to have this level of crispiness, etc. So you have tested and tried this recipe yourself. You think you've perfected in some way that you know what should be done. And then you're trying to communicate that information to someone else. I really don't think that that's what's going on when our constitution or any other constitution was drafted. Instead, I think, you know, a better way to think about it is that you had a group of people that were imperfect, flawed, didn't have access to perfect information, et cetera, that were trying to create a broad outline for a process for resolving disputes, not necessarily prescriptive answers for exactly what the resolution of those disputes should look like. So they're sort of vaguely describing the process of cooking in many places and hoping that later generations will figure out, depending on whether or not they want chicken or casserole or prime rib, what to do with that information. But the idea that we are just trying to divine the, the recipe and get right what they had in mind just doesn't seem like what's going on at all here. Okay, so obviously this is a, an easy analogy to mock, but I actually think there's more to it. So so first of all, recipes can have that too, right? There are steps in, in a lot of recipes I cook from that say things like add salt and pepper to taste, or you know, add some hot sauce if you like, serve this with any of the following things or whatever comes to mind. So there are steps even in a recipe 
where they are giving some things up to, you know, up to you to figure out what to do. And similarly, the Constitution's not all vague, right? There are some things in it where it says, like, every state gets two senators, and that's just the rule. Uh, not a framework for deciding, like, about how many people should be in the Senate or about what kind of people should be in the Senate. But, like, they're going to be elected by the states, and there are two of them. Sure. I mean, the Constitution is a combination of rules and standards. And I think the things that are explicit rules, we really don't have debate about, right? So the president, the Constitution will say something like, the president has to be at least 35 years old, or this is the number of votes that it is needed for a supermajority, et cetera. And maybe there's some weird exceptions somewhere where there's some kooky arguments that, you know, 35 doesn't mean 35. But for the most part, that's not what we're talking about with constitutional agreements. We're talking about what due process means, what equal protection means, what freedom of speech means, et cetera. Uh, and these are the things that I think are intentionally vague. You know, if we were just trying to figure out what they meant by 35 years old and we had to go back to see how they counted age in, 1970, or in 1789, that I'd understand. But I think, you know, the right way to think of it is maybe, like you said, the framer said something like, leave salt and pepper to taste and intentionally leaving it open to interpretation. And then originalism feels like the project of going back and trying to calculate how much salt people added to their fried chicken in 1789 based on a flawed historical record. Yeah, so maybe. So this this is where I think some originals are more vulnerable to this criticism than others, but I hope we're on the same page. So it seems right to me that if the document leaves it intentionally vague, then that's the then you as a faithful interpreter, you know, shouldn't try to, to make it less vague than it is. Right? If they say add salt and pepper to taste, you shouldn't try to figure out, well, you know, give me a rule how much salt and pepper. You should say, okay, that's that's what I've been commissioned to do. But if they didn't, then then they didn't. And what if we can't tell? You know, what if we get a phrase like freedom of speech or equal protection of the laws? And some people say, oh, actually, that's pretty precise. It might seem vague to you, but if you if you understood what they were trying to do, you'd see that it's pretty precise. And somebody else comes along and says it's pretty vague. That seems like if you get to a step in the recipe where you know now you're not sure. Like, is this a stage where I'm supposed to just like add as much salt and pepper as I want, or is there some other principle that I should refer to where they actually intended me to you know fill in the gaps? You know, maybe it says add salt and pepper. And if I looked around enough, I'd see, oh, when they say add salt and pepper to taste, they mean about this much. They don't mean like add so much salt on it that it's inedible. Right. If that's a version of originalism that we're going for, maybe I'm okay with this. If what we're saying is when the constitution is vague, we shouldn't be trying to make it less vague through appealing appeals to the historical record. But that doesn't feel like what's going on with so much of the modern practice to me. I feel instead more what we have is like, you know, Justice Thomas's law clerks trying to find articles, you know, on what three people thought at this exact period and, and then acting like that that's some kind of divine revelation about what these clauses mean and tell us about the limits of what we can currently do and saying, if you were to ever add more salt than this, you'd be unreasonable, where instead tastes can evolve and tastes can change. And the fact that someone had a particular preference at the time, I'm not sure that it was intended to guide us, nor, nor should it. Okay, good, good. So, I, I mean, I think we're on the same page, and now the question is just whether whether maybe we've defeated originalism by by supplying good argument for it. I, I will say, you know, even if this, even if my attempt to save this argument works, it's going to be in tension with one of the consequentialist arguments for originalism. So, the one of the two consequentialist arguments for originalism is it constrains judicial discretion, and judicial discretion is bad. So, there is like this funny seesaw where some people say we're originalists because we don't want judges making stuff up, but if Adam and I are right that sometimes the Constitution intentionally leaves things open-ended, then somebody, judges or somebody else, is going to be in charge of making stuff up. All right. Before we get to that, though, I'm curious, why do we call this a linguistic argument? What do you mean by 
linguistic argument here. The idea is that it's an, it analogizes the Constitution to like lots of other documents. And there's, I guess this sort of an even more general form of this argument is the Constitution is written down. What's the point of writing stuff down unless you wanted people to read it and do what the author said? So there are people pursue this analogy. Some people do an analogy to a recipe. Some people do an analogy to a letter, to an analogy to like, I send, you know, instructions to somebody else to go buy something for me at the store. Like the idea is that it's just like, it's just about kind of reading the words and trying to figure out whether the words are, are ambiguous or not. And it's weirdly opaque to consequences, to like whether this is going to be a good system of government, whether this is a good way to run the country, right? That's the sense of which it's just like more linguistic or conceptual. I don't know. Is there a better label for it? I've never been happy with this. Yeah, I think that it's not an ideal label. I can't think of what it is. I mean, that it feels like, you know, what's going on here is not a specific linguistic claim. It's just a, appeals to analogies of other forms of written documents, which, you know, it doesn't feel so much like a linguistic argument that's appealed to. It's just like an appeal to the form of what we're, we're up to here. All right. So there is a much more sophisticated philosophical overlay you can do on this that Larry Solom at Virginia is the most famous for, where you say... As a general matter of linguistics, linguists have agreed that the meaning of a sentence is usually the speaker's meaning, and this is captured by a guy named Paul Grice, and then, you know, Grice has worked out, you know, how to figure out, how do people who read a text figure out, like, what's the person behind it trying to say, and there are all these fancy words like implicature and implicature and quantum domain restriction to, like, capture the basic process of reading the document. I both don't know. I know enough to know that in linguistics, like this is actually kind of contested. And so if you get linguistics at linguists in, they won't they'll all laugh at the idea that there's just like a thing called reading and that's all that there is to it. And I'm not sure how much it adds. So I like the fried chicken recipe more personally. But there is there is an attempt to lay a whole superstructure on it. Yeah. All right. So I'm on board with you that the fried chicken recipe is more appealing than this and that this is exactly the kind of academic scholarship, at least if I understand you correctly, that I'm extremely averse to, which is I think there is a branches of many different academic disciplines, anthropology, sociology, philosophy, certainly law and other fields as well, that tries to take relatively simple concepts, run you through the ringer of big words, complicated arguments, and then come out the end and say, Therefore, for all of these moves that are nearly impossible to follow, I'm right and you're wrong. And I think that that should be avoided at all costs, especially most of all in something like our democratic form of government in which we're trying to bring people in and not, you know, use highfalutin ideas that no one knew of at the time to come up with a reason why uh, actually my preferred system of interpretation should be the correct one. So I do appreciate the, uh, the move of sticking with fried chicken instead of, you know, philosophical structures of the nature of language. Okay. So lest all the smartest originalists eventually hear this come after me, I will say, I think we could say more to defend them, but I won't. Actually, I'll just say two other things. So there is, you know, one version of this argument that comes up is a lot of these, this modern philosophy of language did not itself exist at the founding. So there is an irony in originalists trying to interpret language written in the 18th century by using a linguistic philosophy from the late 20th and early 21st century. Like, it seems like something funny is going on here. And if you go read, like, founding era philosophy of language, which, of course, people have done, you know, it's a totally different way of thinking about things that, that nobody accepts anymore. Well, I think that what you're getting at is a specific instance of a more general irony, which is, as far as I can tell, originalism is a project of the second half of the 20th century, saying that we need to be stuck to the second half of the uh, 18th century. So just inherently, there's something weird that we came up with the idea that we cared about what the original meaning was long after the people that were there at the original meaning, you know, 
had died without trying to push this upon us. So let's talk about this a lot next week. Sure. I think this is, but I think this is important. I was just going to say the other thing about this, like these really complicated philosophical concepts, just in defense of them, is that often I think they just don't matter like 99% of the time, but they can actually be useful at explaining weird edge cases. And if you don't care about the weird edge cases, then you don't ever need them. But people like including constitutional interpretation get tied into knots, the questions about like, well, how can a document that's written by multiple people have any meaning? Because if meaning is about the speaker's intent and the speakers, you know, one of the speakers secretly want to do something else, then doesn't that make the text meaningless? And then people come along and say, no, no, there's just like a whole sort of set of weird, weird hypos that the, these things can be useful for solving. But if we don't care about them, then I think we can, we can dispense with it. It's not that they're useless, but they're going to solve a problem that neither of us cares about right now. Okay. So the other main arguments for originalism, obviously, are more consequentialist, that this is a good, this is a good idea. This is a good way to interpret the Constitution. So it's not just like inherent in the nature of reading, you know, even if you can have different analogies and say that the Constitution's not quite like a fried chicken recipe, you know, this is still, this is still a good way to do it. I think these also kind of come in two major, in two major types. So one, which is most famously put forward by two professors named John McGinnis and Michael Rappaport, is that the sort of, to rely on the process that produced the Constitution. So they say, again, very much oversimplifying, apologies to everybody, the Constitution was ad adopted in a sort of process that's remarkably likely to generate good, a good framework for government. It was adopted in this broad supermajority framework where it needed lots of states and large majorities to, to produce the whole thing. So you couldn't just get something that was that was partisan. And it was, you know, the more people thought it was a good idea, the more likely it was to be a good idea. Uh, and that process makes it likely that the Constitution's pretty good. And then it's not perfect, obviously. So that process was the process and substance was deeply flawed. It, you know, excluded lots of people who shouldn't have been excluded. It ratified various injustices. And those have been fixed over time using the same supermajority process. So we have amendments to end slavery and include Americans and women in the political process and so on and so forth. So again, the supermajority process sort of is presumptively good. And then it produces these amendments that are also presumptively good. And if you stand back and look at it, having a system where the constitution can only be given meaning by pretty big groups means that you're forced to come up with a kind of broad consensus and the constitution will only contain things that a broad consensus of people think is a good idea and therefore we should interpret it that way and that produces this kind of this kind of broad framework that's a of generally sound structure like you wanted got it okay let me say there is in comparative constitutional law this set of arguments that constitutions that you can sort of um, measure that were produced for more participatory processes are associated with longer lasting constitutions and so, for instance, the kind of constitution, this is not perfect and there's exceptions. For instance, the Constitution of Japan was essentially written by Douglas MacArthur's staff and hasn't been amended once since, was not participatory, and yet uh, is now relatively long lasting. But in general, the kind of constitution that just doesn't last and doesn't have any staying powers where a handful of people, whether or not a former colonizer or, you know, American lawyers in Iraq or whatever else try to come up with a constitution that's the kind of constitution that won't last. Whereas when you have these broad constituents assemblies, listening tours around the country done by different groups, et cetera, that those constitutions have been associated with greater staying power. So I do think there is something to the idea that more participatory processes are likely to produce better outcomes and outcomes that people are able to live with and that won't um, sort of clearly disadvantage groups in one way or another. 
Now, that said, if you were to try to think of, you know, his, in, by in historical terms, uh, an exclusive process, I'm not so sure that that the American founding isn't um, pretty far on the bad side of the ledger. We only have people uh, of one gender, of one race, of one political class that had one view on the right way to structure the government at the time, right? So we have white men that are rich, educated, wealthy, have a particular set of religious views and were opposed to the British. I don't know what percent of the population that represented, but I would be absolutely astounded if it was more than 50, because just once you take out women, we can't get there. So we're talking about, what, 20% of the population that these particular views might represent at best. And so when I think that people appeal to the idea that we need broadly popular participation to have a valid process, they're talking about a lot broader process than what, than what we had in our, in our case. And so that is a, an instrumental argument. It just, it rings really hollow. You know, the original sin of our constitution is that we uh, enshrined slavery and excluded so many groups. And then to appeal to the participatory nature as an instrumental argument for why we should care what those people think seems really wrong to me. Okay, good. I think the the most insightful thing about this argument, actually, which is also maybe a surprise to a lot of not what people associate with originalism, is it makes the constitutional amendments really important, right? And this argument, I think it's clear, if the Constitution was the Constitution that was enacted at the founding, you know, the whole thing would fail. It wasn't adopted by a very broad process. Somebody just pointed out in the chat, right? It's a supermajority of mainly wealthy white men. You know, presumably they have substantive views that that lots of other people wouldn't have had. So I, that's right. So that's why the, the key, I don't know whether it's a, a patch or another piece of this argument is, that means that, that we're talking about not just the participatory nature of the constitution, but of the amendment process. And what adopting originalism does is it really focuses you on the amendment process and says, to the degree there are, flaws in the constitution, the best way to fix them is again, the supermajority amendment process, which gives you a lot of very good amendments. Like most of our amendments have been great. Maybe that's because we have this supermajority process to produce them. Right. I understand certainly that without this, especially the, the civil rights amendments, the reconstruction amendments, that beginning to even defend the, the constitution is completely untenable. And so until we get to 13, 14, 15 and revoking slavery putting in a form of uh, equal protection, et cetera, then maybe there's the case that we can do this. That said, the nature of what a constitution is about is trying to put in place restrictions on the wills of the political majority to respect the rights of political minorities. And so appealing to the idea that there's a process that requires a supermajority to amend, it's not obvious that this is going to do a great job respecting the, the views of the minority that were shut out of the room to begin with. And then their only way to make a change in their interest is to get a supermajority of people to disagree, to agree with them. And so I'm not sure that the amendment process can do enough to correct that original problem. I mean, point taken, is that the main purpose of the Constitution? So like, it seems like step one of a Constitution is just finding rules for setting up a government. Like certainly right now, you got all these people who think they should be in charge of the government. And if we didn't have rules, we would just have chaos or fighting in the streets. So like step one is just to come up with some ground rules for how people, who should be in charge that enough people will buy into that we won't have fighting in the streets and we'll, you know, have some kind of regular transfers of power. And then because those governments, like that's obviously going to lead to all sorts of abuses. The immediate step two is how do we keep that from devolving into mob rule or a small majority or a, you know, a bare majority can oppress everybody else, right? You do need both for like the constitution to be doing something. 
right? Sure. I mean, you need to set up the rules for who has power and what they can do with it, right? And the limits on that power. I don't disagree that these are both key steps and we needed to figure out that we're going to have a bicameral legislature and a president and a Supreme Court and whatever various other institutions that were that were established there. And that's why the amendment process seems like it's got to be somehow trying to strike a balance. It can't be too hard to amend the Constitution or else the Constitution will lack any democratic legitimacy and you know, the whole system will fall apart. But it can't be too easy or else, as you say, it won't provide any protections to minorities or other people. Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know what the right answer is on this. So for instance, you know, the state constitutions within the United States, there's obviously variants across states, but in general are much easier to amend than the national constitution. And so, you know, in any given election, there are states that are rewriting pieces of their constitution through various referendum. Uh, and these come up fairly regularly. Are states that make it easy to amend their constitution through these processes, or I should say relatively easy to amend their constitutions through these processes, worse off? You know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I certainly know that there's the U.S. Constitution at the national level is harder to amend than the state constitutions at the state level. And our constitution then becomes the site of so much argument uh, in a way that I just don't think is true is in other states or in other countries, the way that we we have it. In other words, I agree that it can't be too easy or too hard, but the idea that we're anywhere close to the right balance to me, it seems, uh, seems questionable. I'm not sure we are either, but I think this is one of the things we're focusing on. I, I guess state constitutions seem tough because they seem differently situated in important ways. You can escape your state a lot more easily. You can escape the U.S. if something has gone wrong and you have the backstop of all these federal rights. So, you know, at this point, I don't worry that much about what rights the Illinois Constitution protects because the federal constitution protects a lot of rights that, you know, there's a sort of a floor that Illinois can't go below. So I'm not sure how to think about whether the, you know, the amendment regime should be the same for, for both of them or not. Yeah. All right. So let's think of this another way. So I think there's two basic sets of things that where the constitutional argument is most contentious, a specific set of rights within the Constitution and a specific set of structures that's uh, formed within the body of the Constitution. So first on the rights, I think what people are most concerned about is not, you know, all of the amendments, but the First Amendment, the criminal process amendments, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, et cetera. And then the 14th Amendment, most notably, right? Now, these amendments are the amendments that, let's throw in second there too, the Second Amendment. These are the amendments that we're fighting about the most and what they mean and how they should constrict our government, et cetera. We can very at least agree that none of those amendments were passed with any meaningful participation of women and minorities in this country. And it is those groups that are demanding their rights. So appealing to the original understanding of these amendments and using the fact that we were able to amend it to defend this thing, it just seems like all a circular bunch of crap to me, right? It's like, don't worry, you have the 14th Amendment. However, you have to interpret it the way that us white guys understood it in 1865 is not helpful. Yeah. So factually, I'm not sure it's right that, that African-Americans didn't participate in the, in the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Fair. I apologize. The ratification of the 14th Amendment is messy in lots of ways because the... I watched the movie Lincoln, so I'm an expert on this topic. Okay. That's the 13th Amendment, Adam. Uh, <laughs> didn't watch it that closely. <laughs> the, the 13th Amendment passes easily and Lincoln is president and everybody's happy. The 14th Amendment is after Andrew Johnson comes into power and tries to end Reconstruction. 
and tries to campaign against the 14th Amendment. And the North holds the Southern states at gunpoint and tells them that they can only come back into Congress if they agree to ratify the 14th Amendment, which they do on the promise that they will respect all the civil rights of the newly freed African-Americans. And then they break the promise basically as soon as the North's back is turned, which is very fast. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think about that in general. Maybe the whole process looks shady. But there's a point taken. Uh, say, There's a funny blend of process and substance going on in this argument. Right. It, it's it's not saying the process is perfect. It's not like defending the Constitution just by looking at it provision by provision and saying free speech is good. Equality is good. And it's not quite defending the process, but it is saying that some sort of blend. Right. Like the Constitution has this increasingly majoritarian process that makes the Constitution increasingly liberty and equality and prosperity protecting. And that's a, a you know, a good process. Maybe the better way to think about it is if we wanted to amend the Constitution today, pass new amendments, which lots of us do, we would want those amendments to be interpreted in an originalist fashion, right? That's, we would amend it, we'd have an idea of what we're trying to do, and we would, you know, want other people to, to take what we did seriously, right? No, we shouldn't want that. I don't think that that's, that's what the, the people would want. So there's this argument that, that I love that this economist at Duke called, named Timor Koran makes about the great divergence between Europe and the Middle East. And what he says is for... I'm going to get the dates wrong, but let's say for until hundreds of years that the relative wealth of Europe and the Middle East is nearly the same. And there's um, technological developments that are taking place in the Middle East that are moving to Europe and technological developments in Europe that are moving to the Middle East. But somewhere, uh, I can't remember exactly when, let's say five, six, seven hundred years ago, there's a divergence and Europe starts getting richer at a much faster pace than the Middle East. Uh, and so the question is, what creates this huge divergence? And what Koran argues is that what took place is that the two areas adopted a fundamentally different attitude about governance. And so the example that he gives, for instance, is that within the Middle East, that there were many fatwas, diktas, wives, et cetera. I'm going to get these words wrong, where essentially you could have a proclamation and state this say, this is the way that we will run our city. This is the way that we were running our charity. This is the way that we were running, et cetera. And it can't change. And it's interpreted in an extremely originalist fashion. Europe, on the other hand, adopted a whole range of governments from the corporate form to parliament, et cetera, that were all meant to be maximally, or maybe not maximally, but quite flexible and allowed to change to different circumstances. And his argument is that we have this great experiment in whether or not you should have flexible government that can adapt or government where you lock in some person's original meaning and one goes poorly and halts economic development and human progress, and the other advances it. And so the idea that then we should want to write an amendment that everyone has to interpret it exactly the way that we thought about it seems like a real problem to me. And you're just saying, like, I want future generations to be locked into lower welfare. So, you know, I'm not on board with this. Yeah, well, I guess maybe this comes back to whether the amendment process, what the amendment process should look like, but, but not locked in permanently, locked in until they can, until they can help with something better. Right. Like take like the Electoral College. We all agree the Electoral College sucks. We should have something else. There have been attempts to amend the Electoral College like 30 bazillion times throughout history. And the problem is, nope, we can't ever get enough people to agree on what alternative system would be better and workable. Once we can, we can do it. Until then, we're stuck with it. Yeah. All right. This is great. This circles. So I said that there are two main areas of contestation where this is important. So one is like the set of rights that are protected by the Constitution that are part of the amendments. And then the second thing I would say is the basic structure of government itself. And so, for instance, you know, I have a beef with the fact that I think that one person, one vote is an important principle. 
And yet we have a set of institutions that systematically disadvantage people that live in cities or in concentrated ways. Even though the city is like the greatest invention in human history that advances welfare and economic progress in so many ways. But yet we have a political system that disadvantages it because we have, you know, the Senate gives more votes to land that then rectified through the Electoral College, which then influences the Supreme Court. And again and again, you have a system of government where small states, smaller interests have dramatically disproportionate interests. Now, that was baked in from the jump. And if you were one of these people that lives in Chicago, as we do, or in New York, or in LA, or in Atlanta, or in Phoenix, you're just systematically at a disadvantage against people with rural interests. And the idea that the amendment process can be your savior in this uh, and solve that this uh, you were cut a bad deal because you weren't allowed in the room, uh, I don't know how well it works. Right. Although, you know, we didn't live in Phoenix or Chicago or anywhere when the Constitution was enacted because we weren't we weren't there at all, right? So the thing, sure, <laughs> right. The thinking about which way those cut for like real people, I guess part of the point is, if you look over time at efforts to amend the Electoral College, at various points, people have thought it helped the Democrats or helped the Republicans or helped this group or help. Like we know which states it helps mostly. <laughs> Although that's a little complicated because it also sort of disadvantages some of the big states that are not swing states. Like you know, but we more or less know which states it which states it helps. But in terms of like real interest on the ground. Got it. All right. Well, I think I've I've broken the rules, ground rules that we set out at the start of this, which is almost immediately once you went to the participation argument, I started arguing back hard. But let me try to make sure that I understand the the charitable version of it, which is to, and so let me try to to say it back to you, which the instrumental argument is something like either we can have rules that structure and constrain our government that are developed through a political process. And even though the one that we had is deeply flawed in a variety of ways, it's still some form of political process. In contrast, if we ever discard originalism, what we're saying is the policy preferences and political preferences of anyone that can get five justices on the Supreme Court, that can change our system of government, our rights, our structures, et cetera. And on average, the political process, however may flawed, is one where we should put stake or be willing to prioritize as opposed to, you know, the, the preferences of those five justices. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's pretty close. So and I'll just say this, this leads us into the second consequentialist argument, which may be necessarily intertwined. So let's just go there. And that's to say, whatever you think of the, of the process, the amendment process, the supermajority process, you got to compare it to the alternatives. And the realistic alternative is having judges update the constitution. Like the really the two plausible methods we have of constitutional change are having the people amend it through our overly restrictive amendment process, or having the judges amend it through, you know, our Supreme Court, which is picked by a process we know all too well. And on average, we should expect that amendments that have to get a broad consensus from the people will be better than judges making stuff up that have to get five, that just have to get one of Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Roberts to believe in them, or you know whichever justice you want over time. And so that on average, it, it beats judicial updating. That's the other argument. Uh, okay, so I think I might have understood the first argument to be the second argument. So what's the difference? Okay, so the first argument is just to say the process, once you look at the process as a whole, including amendments, is, is not deeply flawed. It's pretty good. It's not perfect. It has problems. The problems work out over time. The process is pretty good. And so on average, it leads to a pretty good constitution. Not the best constitution, but not a terrible constitution. And there are lots of terrible constitutions. So that's that's argument one. And then the second argument is let's focus on on how bad it would be to have judges do it. Got it. Okay. 
let me go back to argument one for a second then, now that I understand the difference. Okay, within this, since we've had something that looks like closer to full political participation, so uh, women, minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, et cetera, a variety of different populations having, and also the young, having greater rights to participate in the political process. So let's say, you know, post-1960s, post-civil rights era, post-Vietnam era, where we expand suffrage to uh, a variety of groups and we are more more serious about dismantling Jim Crow. Have we been able to have any amendment of something of real substance since then? I mean, I think at each stage, yes. It's sort of a, you might say it's sort of a virtuous circle, right? So we get the Reconstruction Amendments and African-American voting rights. And then after that, we get progressive amendments like the income tax, which is really important, and direct election of senators. Then in turn, you get things like the right of women to vote. Then that in turn gets you the right of young people to vote. I mean, so, you know, the right of young people to vote, people ages 18 to 21, was only 50 years ago. And we haven't done much amending since. I think we're in a kind of amendment lull at the moment. But but I think you could look at it and say, like, it's kind of a, it's a virtuous circle building up. But maybe maybe the worry is we're petering out instead, right? We've kind of like, we're amending it in less and less important ways. And we've kind of plateaued. We've reached peak constitution. And if that's not good enough, we're in trouble. Yeah, that's my concern is that I'm really not. So this argument, as I, under, as I understand it now, this instrumentalist argument is that if we want to change the constitution, we should put our faith in the amendment process and that that's the correct avenue to do it. Right. And that the process that's been produced is a relatively good one. I'm just a little more skeptical that it's a, a viable process once we have, you know, full political participation and full political rights that we can ever get the kind of super majorities and sustained support for something to amend the constitution that would be quite re-required to fix some of these falls. So this does get us back to the second argument, the last argument again, which is, I think they'd say, and, and, the reason it seems like that is because now we have so much judicial updating of the Constitution. Like, there's so little demand for constitutional amendments now because everybody knows if you want to get the Constitution changed, it's easier to just, you know, try to win the presidency and the Senate long enough to get a few new Supreme Court justices. So why bother with amendments? You know, if you don't like Roe versus Wade, why bother with an amendment to overturn Roe versus Wade? Easier to just try to put some justices on the court and vice versa for whatever else you want, you know, a right to same-sex marriage uh, or, or what have you. So, so they'd say, like, that just brings us back to, you know, how does it compare to the alternatives? And the real question is, how do we feel about judges making it up instead? Right. So I get that what part of the argument here is that is to say, if we were to get rid of judges being not originalists and judges were to issue some hard decisions, you know, that were done in an originalist way, even if it went against those justices' political preferences and say, like, you know, look, I might support same-sex marriage, but that was not consistent with an original interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. Therefore, if you want this at the national level, you're going to have to have to get the votes for an amendment, that that would have created political support to, to get them through an amendment, right? So that's the, right, it's this counterfactual world in which we didn't have the judicial valve that we have a more robust amendment process. Right, although we get some and not others, right? So we could try to run the counterfactual of which you know, of the 30 most important Supreme Court decisions in the past years, you know, which ones would we have gotten through the amendment process and which ones would we not have gotten, right? So there probably would be, maybe we'd be at Obergefell by now, maybe not. We certainly wouldn't get Heller or Citizens United, you know, I don't know what else we'd get. Like, so, right, it's, it's to say the, the counterfactual world, the set of things you'd get in that world would be better than the set of stuff that the Supreme Court gives us and takes away. Right. I get that that's what they're, 
they're saying what, but one feature that's nice of relying on the justices is that you don't have to believe that the justices, that any set of five of them or any particular moment in time, that they're really competent or, you know, really smart or that they make great judgments on this. What you have to put your faith in is not the justices is, but is the common law process. And so what's so like absolutely brilliant about the common law and that evolved to these sort of like really smart legal systems and contracts and torts and property and private law generally is that the judges do make mistakes. And then when those, those mistakes are seen that they can relatively easy rectify them and they're able to evolve the law in these smart ways. And if you were to just ask me upfront, you know, whether or not I trust a a common law system or a civil law system, in most areas, the common law system seems to be a no brainer that it works better when we compare across countries. And so you're now just asking me what I prefer, you know, a common law or a civil law constitution. Common law is just a slam dunk better than civil law in general. So why am I so afraid of the civil law and what seems to be what the originalists want? So I feel like this is good. I feel like this is a little bit of a a little bit of a false dichotomy. I mean, even the, you know, common law courts in the United States over time have changed a lot in how aggressive they think the judges are in terms of their their right to make do policy, right? So second half of the 20th century, after legal realism and law and economics, common law courts are a lot more willing to be kind of policymakers. And then, yeah. then the new judges come along and fix them. Before that, they were much more reluctant, first on kind of on both ideological and practical grounds. And we might say, you know, a lot of the evidence of the wisdom of the common law system was that older version where the judges did sort of evolve the law slowly, but but not too much. And that's very different from a world where we're ju- you know, governed by the California Supreme Court. Yeah, but this is just uh, gets us to a meta common law argument, which is you're exactly right. The California Supreme Court went pretty far in a number of areas of law in the second half of the 20th century and rewriting, for instance, products, liability, responsibility to others, a range of doctrines. And I think in many of those areas, there's now recognition that maybe it went too far too fast and the common law can then adapt. So it's not just the individual decisions that can change through the common law process, but also the attitude towards revision itself. Yeah. And okay. So Fair enough. So then the other difference is the common law has this uh, has two great features that are, that are missing here. So one is the legislature is supreme on questions of common law. So the court will often say this. They'll say, well, we're going a little bit out on a limb, but if people don't like it, they can always change it. Right. right? You don't hear that from the the Supreme Court is not trying to help the amendment process in the same way. They're trying to, to take it away. The other is that we have a bunch of different, the common law system is more like an experiment, right? You have a bunch of different state courts issuing different things. That gives you genuine diversity and experimentation among the courts. And we can see, okay, California is doing it well, you know, New York is not doing it so well, et cetera. Whereas all of constitutional law is centralized in, in nine people. So you lose the experiments, you lose the diversity. And I don't know if we would think that the common law looked so good if the Supreme Court made it all for the whole country. All right. So I find the first argument pretty persuasive in that, yeah, it does seem problematic if nine people can decide something and there's no viable way to change what they decide. And if they say it's a constitutional decision and not a statutory decision based on statutes or some other some other source of law, that can be difficult because then we're just back to the point where we need the amendment process. And they may be, as you said, sapping the political will for the amendment process to work. So I agree that that is, that is a real drawback. That's potentially, that's potentially problematic. Second on the part of the value of the common law process is the experimentation. 
I think that's one value, but you can have two kinds of variation, right? So you can have cross-jurisdiction variation and cross-time jurisdiction. And so, for instance, there's many countries that have, you know, common law forms of government, but they don't have states in the same way that we do, and their system can still work reasonably well. So the states is just one model to think about common law, but it's not the only one. And that, for instance, you can imagine the Supreme Court issuing some decision, letting it play out for some number of years and saying, wow, we got that wrong, and then going in and changing it. And of course, they do, right? And so it doesn't always require the states to have the, the laboratories of democracy, so to speak. But, but it's a lot easier to tell whether you got something wrong if you've got you know somebody else with a different rule you should look to. Now, people sometimes encourage the Supreme Court to look to other countries for this reason. They say, you know, look, other countries, you know, have different rules than we do on the death penalty or Miranda warnings or whatever else and that should be a clue to us. But there are so many more cross-cultural variations in trying to figure out other countries to look to. Whereas if you had a way that you could say, you know, we got three different constitutional courts going, you know, one for the North, one for the South, and one for the West or something, and they could each look to each other and see how it's working out, you know, that you'd learn more. That's right. I assume no country that's as similar to the United States as the state of Illinois is similar to, if you had to pick one country to to analogize from, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Agreed there. Right. I mean, if anything, this is like a complaint people have about federalism, as they now say the problem is the states aren't different enough, as, you know, everybody consumes national media, the amount of like local variation in culture and political culture is just decreasing in general. So we might be, it might be even more true now than it, than it was in the past. Got it. Okay. So to make sure I understand this. So the case for originalism up to 2013, to be clear, up until the so-called positive turn that we'll get to, there's three main arguments that are advanced. The first is uh, what we were calling the linguistic argument, which is the fried chicken argument saying the constitution is a recipe. And just like other forms of written instructions, that the way to think about those instructions is to understood what the the writer was trying to tell us and to try to as faithfully as possible uh, execute the instructions. Second argument is an instrumental argument that the various political trade-offs that have been made throughout history have been made through process of political participation. And even though flawed and incomplete, that that, that process produced these various compromises and that when we should prioritize those compromises along the way, for instrumental reasons. And and third, the third uh, instrumental argument that's being made is the tyranny of, of justices run amok and how it's problematic to, to rely on their decision-making. And even if they are behaving in some common law way, it's a flawed common law way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess the, the last thing I'll say is, we haven't talked about this yet, is these might all kind of add together too. They might, they might, each of them, we've made them as independent arguments, but you might be able to, to fold them all together. All right. So let me ask you this. All three of these things feel like debates that reasonable people could disagree on, right? Um, that is, you could disagree on whether or not the Constitution should be understood like a recipe or some other text that we allow the, the reader to interpret differently as historical conditions evolve that we could disagree about the value of the amendment process and the political participation that produced our existing compromises of government. And you could disagree on the value of judicial decision-making. But all of these are debatable topics that people could disagree with. What I am surprised that these three arguments, however, have less of a normative um, piece than I thought that there would be. And what I mean by that 
is that I feel often as if originalists imply in public discourse, and perhaps not in the academic papers that you write, but in public discourse, the judges that testify in front of the Senate when they're trying to get confirmed or when they write these things in the Supreme Court will say things as if, like, the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution is originalism, and that anything else is a travesty, et cetera. And it's just loaded in this, like, really normative way, as if, like, there is a right way and a wrong way, as opposed to, like, depending on your views about the political process, this might be a preferable outcome to some other system. Yeah. So, so I, I know the phenomenon you're talking about. I think there is this funny, there's this funny difference between the way originalism is talked about in academic discourse and the role it has in, in political discourse. But I don't think it's, at, I guess, like, as you talk, like, as you walk through these arguments, right? So especially, like, you put all three of them together. So this is the way we normally read texts. This text in particular was adopted through a process that makes this a sensible way to read it. And the alternative is, you know, ignoring the normal principles of our structure of our government and the, and the written word to just literally just make stuff up. You, I, could, I could gin that up in a more bombastic way to say, we really are talking about sort of judicial tyranny versus originalism. Those are the only two options. And then it's not as surprising that people who pick judges are not super excited about, about picking people who say, I want to be a judicial tyrant. And you got to say, no, no, of course, I would never want to be a judicial tyrant. I would I would want to do something safe like originalism. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's I guess that's right. Now, let me ask you, given that these are the arguments that you're putting forward, is it your view on the question that there like is a right answer to this, that that we're locked into? A, I mean, obviously, you have a you a view that originalism is the right answer. But what I mean by that is that this is uh, deterministic in some way that we have no choice but to be originalist here. That is the, the system that we have. I don't think these arguments by themselves are enough to give us no choice. I think by, by the time we get to the positive turn, maybe it'll be more complicated. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a harder line. But I, I guess I should say so two things. So I guess the fact that something is subject to reasonable debate doesn't mean there's not a right answer, right? So you take like ethics 101 and people talk about whether deontologism or utilitarianism is the right answer. And anybody who cares for these things like knows you can be either like they're good arguments for being a utilitarian and good arguments for believing in like fundamental rights that are not subject to utilitarianism. It's subject to debate. But once you've like bought one side of the debate, you know, you often have really bought it, right? If you really think that no amount of innocent lives are worth torturing and killing an innocent person, like you really believe it and you'll feel it with very strong moral fervor, even though you say, yeah, yeah I know that when I was in college, I heard arguments for utilitarianism and they're plausible, but, but they're wrong and this is wrong. So I feel there's just something funny going when we sort of like, we have a debate over methodology at a high level. Like once we've picked a methodology, it's not surprising that, that some of the things seem really important to you. Yeah, I guess it feels like exactly like that, which is what I mean by this is that I think there are some questions where there is a fact of the matter, right? So, you know, what is the temperature today in Chicago? There might be some measurement error in the way that we measure, but there is a right answer, right? That there, uh, we can just solve that question. Is climate change occurring? Um, we might not know the right answer, but there is an answer, right? There is a, a fact of the matter of what it is. And there might even be, uh, you know, the fact of a matter about, you know, historical facts, right? What your Columbus landed in the Americas or something like that. We might get the historical record wrong, but there is an answer to that question. But then there's the kind of topics you debate in, uh, you know, college philosophy seminars, whether or not we should uh, divert the trolley problem. <laughs> Some people have decided in life that they're allowed to yell at you as much as they want, that there is an answer to that question. And originalist just feels the same to me. Like, you've got a preference over the way the Constitution should be 
performed. You think it's the better way to interpret the Constitution, but is the way to interpret the Constitution and anyone else that doesn't interpret that way has got it wrong. That's where I that's where it uh, leaves me behind in that. This is another time it's good. It's not a debate because I'm kind of with you. Yeah. Like, I, think, I think these arguments have sort of sounded in political theory. And look, there are people yeah. in political theory who believe there are right answers to questions of political theory. More power to them. I'm sort of with you and thinking like a lot of these sound suspiciously contingent to me. Like I can tell the story for why you'd believe it, but it sounds contingent and like to require more data that I don't have. And we've already sort of gotten into some of this. So the thing that, that gave me pause at this stage is the, partly the comparative point is like how many countries there are that have constitutions and don't seem to have an originalist practice towards them at all. Uh, or sometimes Almost all, right. And there are various there are good papers about this too. And so like yeah. Canada, I think for a while had two prominent originalist academics and now they lost them both because they both became judges. So that's interesting. But still, like they're an obvious minority. You know, Australia had like a brief originalist streak, but then Israel, nothing like it. You know, France, just like over and over again. So that's the part that kind of made me think, to your point, if this were some like, just like true feature of constitutional law, it's really weird that... The United States is the only place that's found. The only people that figured out is a set of conservative white people in the 1980s in America. Yep, that does seem really weird to me too. Not just that, but yes. Uh, so, so that made me think something else, you know, there's something there's something missing here. Either the arguments don't work or there's there's more to them. This will be the positive turn, which we'll which we'll talk about in another another week. We have four minutes left, so should we see if anybody else wants to ask any questions? Yeah. Anybody else? Put something in the chat or Okay, to return to a more linguistic argument, what's wrong with this two-premise argument for originalism? The job of the judicial branch is to interpret, not make the law, and the identity conditions of the text is fixed by the original public meaning of the text. Therefore, judges should interpret the Constitution based on its original public meaning. Okay, so this is sort of a blend of argument one and argument three, which I think is an important and common way of blending them, right? The judges should interpret, not make the law. That's a basic principle of separation of powers. And once they're interpreting the law, not making it, that means reading the text like a fried chicken recipe in accordance with the original public meaning of the text. Yeah. I mean, if we had a constitution that was full of rules, then maybe I can get on board with this, but we intentionally have a constitution that's full of standards, right? And so the entire ball game is what does it mean by, you know, due process or equal protection? And those are terms that are intentionally vague and, and therefore the, and that weren't, I don't think, fixed at the time that those words were written and were left intentionally vague because people realized we can't think through all of the possible contingencies that will happen in the future. And so people thought that in the future we can come up and run into problems that they hadn't thought of. So they write texts that can accommodate that. And so, you know, being non-originalist is, I think, using the tool of the Constitution as it's intended. So just, you know, Premise one, the idea that the judicial branch is just, you know, interpreting in some strict way feels like the same kind of, you know, to me, just totally implausible argument that like when John Roberts says he's just calling balls and strikes, right? And the idea that that's even possible is absurd, that alone that that's what we intended. So just baking it into premise one to me seems problematic. Okay, so I think this should be one of the things we talk about next week when we talk about objections to originalism, because I feel like you're sliding between two different points. One Probably, is yes. the text of the Constitution itself doesn't want us to be, or the original meaning of the Constitution doesn't want us to be originalist. It's leaving things open in open fashion. Yeah. The I other like is, whatever the text wants, judges shouldn't care about it. Like the judge's job is to is not to enforce the text, but to but to make law. And those are, the, like, both are plausible. I think, you know, one is the common law argument and the other is a kind of argument specifically about the Constitution, but they take you in slightly different directions. 
because I'll respond to one of the arguments by saying, well, look, was this principle, was the Equal Protection Clause intended to be vague, or was it a well-understood term of art that goes back to Blackstone that everybody knew exactly what it meant and we've just forgotten? The other argument will get us back into the like, how good is it for judges to make things up or not? But being, when we try to focus on, you know, where exactly is, is the problem, is, is it, in a way, is it premise one or premise two? I think that'll be, that'll be helpful. So next week, I think on Thursday, we're going to talk about important objections to originalism. Adam is going to lead the way with some of the ones that I mean, you've heard a lot of bits and pieces of them so far, but he's yeah. going to try to make me more sympathetic to a lot of them than I have been in the past. And then week three, we will turn to something new. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to share, hit subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to also check out the other Dissenting Opinions episodes where I talk with top legal minds about a Supreme Court case they believe is misunderstood. Finally, if you're looking for more current SCOTUS talk, check out Divided Argument, an unscheduled and unpredictable Supreme Court podcast hosted by me and Dan Ips. 